0: Hello, this is Tim, the lead pastor of Mosaic Portland, and welcome to the Mosaic Portland podcast. We exist to follow Jesus in authentic community for the world. And right now we're gathering Sundays online uh, to worship together and to open up scripture together. And then after that, we have virtual house gatherings that meet all over our city. And the great thing about these is that you can actually join in wherever you're listening from. We think these right now are the best way to be known, to connect with others, uh, and to be on mission together. They're also where we pray together on Sundays in smaller communities, where we take communion together and debrief what the talk was about and engage scripture more. If you want to find out more information of how to be a part of one in this season, you can find out more info on our website, mosaicportland.org. Now let's go to scripture together as we listen to this podcast. Hi, my name's Mark. We're in a series called Words Fall Short, and we're exploring this idea and this concept of the glory of God, and we're calling it Words Fall Short because glory is just not an easy thing for us to wrap our heads around, to to explain, to understand in words. One of the things, one of the, the techniques that philosophers employ to describe an abstract concept is sometimes to describe it by its antithesis, like a negative definition. And in scripture, the, the, the term glory is, is often like found in contrast to a number of other terms, which help us to understand the, the term glory. One of those terms that glory is like exists as a dichotomy with in scripture is shame we We often think of glory uh, or as uh, we, we often think of honor as the antithesis of shame but the the term glory and the term honor are very closely related and they 're often interchangeably translated and so I, I believe that if we uh, If we try and explore this idea of shame, it'll help us to understand the concept of glory. And the antithesis of that is if we understand the term glory and and not just understand it as a word or as a term, but we understand the depth and the richness of it in in this context, it'll help us to uh, deal with the shame that exists in our lives. And so what is shame? And I think a, a definition that's commonly used to describe shame is it's a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. But it actually goes beyond that. and, and it becomes this deep sense of shame and uh, or a deep sense of humiliation around who we are. Uh, it becomes so intrinsically woven into our, our identity that we find ourselves in this place where we, we can't separate ourselves from the wrong that we've done, from the, the wrong that, this, basically the sin that exists in, in our minds, in our psyche, in the depth of who we are. It's just like interwoven. We cannot separate ourselves from it. And it's this deep sense of inadequacy that just leads you to want to hide who you are and build up walls between yourself and others, and between yourself and God. And shame really um, has plagued us since the days that Adam and Eve first ate from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and and realized, like, oh gosh, we're naked and we we want to hide from from God. And put the, put them in this place of shame. And and God had to shed the blood of an animal to cover their nakedness so that they could go about life without just being totally, totally immobilized by shame. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about our physical bodies being sown in shame. And I, I I think that shame is often connected in our minds to our physical bodies. There are are a lot of people who experience dysmorphia. Um, Often people feel shame over things that um, they've done with their bodies or have been done to their bodies by others. Uh, Sometimes a deep uh, sense of dislike for their appearance or something about them, their voice, their face, how thin they are, or how, whatever, whatever it is, people just like tend to feel shame over their appearance. In South Africa, I was friends with um, a number of people in the medical community, And uh, these these guys would travel up to uh, another country in Africa, Uganda, uh, where people have many people have been disfigured by war, both in Uganda in the past and in, in surrounding countries, and they would do reconstructive surgery on these people to try to alleviate a sense of dignity for these people, people who, uh, many of whom had been intentionally disfigured by people because there's this understanding or a sense that if you can disfigure somebody and and destroy their sense of self through, uh, like their physical appearance, you can control them in some way. And so that's what these people in like the depth of their depravity were doing to other people. I recently also, uh, came across the story of a guy named Robert Hogue, who, as an infant, was born with a, a growth on his, on his face, a, a massive tumour that had to be removed um, at, when, he was, when he was an infant. And in the process, they had to remove like a large portion of his face, and it left him, it left him really, really severely di- disfigured. And, he, and so much so that his own mother struggled... To, to love him and for the first month or two of his life she, um, sh- she couldn't even bring herself to, to hold him and to love him. And his stories about how he had to overcome the shame of rejection um, not just by his family but from people through life as he's lived life and experienced being just severely disfigured and looking different to other people. In the book of Ezekiel, God uses this very picture of an abandoned baby to describe Israel in its shame and being slaves in Egypt. And, and God speaks of this, a, a baby abandoned, left naked, uh, its umbilical cord hasn't been cut, it hasn't been cleansed, it hasn't been washed, there's been no care for this thing. And he's found the nation of Israel in their shame and, and he describes bringing Israel out of that and, and setting Israel on a course of, of love and through this lens of, of honor and dignity he and um, and through his um, his law, bringing bringing Israel um, the law and the sacrificial system, he's bestowed a sense of dignity on them, forgiveness for the things that they've done wrong, and at the center of all of this is this concept of his glory and being them being able to live and exist in the midst of his glory, and so. It's a beautiful story of, of Israel, and in Ezekiel 16, in this analogy, growing up into a woman who's beautiful, dignified, and strong and healthy. But in this story, in Ezekiel 16, it goes on to speak about how Israel abandons God and how uh, this woman who's dignified is led into a life of prostitution and rejects God and his offer for freedom and living under his glory. And God says this, he says, yet, despite this, yet, I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And God promises that he would establish this new covenant. His redemptive plan will not fail. He's planned to move his people from from shame and from failure into a shared place of glory with him. And he's determined, He, he says, I will do this. And he makes this profound promise in the book of Ezekiel. And in various other places in the Old Testament to say, this is something that I will achieve. Your shame will not walk with you forever. And so with that as a backdrop, I want to take us to a passage in in one of the Gospels in the book of Matthew in chapter 17. and, And it's deeply steeped in the language of glory, this language that over the last few weeks as as Tim and Becky and Adam have preached, um, we've encountered this language and particularly in the book of Exodus. And um, I think it's just a beautiful story and a strange story and I'd love to read that for us and just unpack this a little bit. And it says in Matthew 17 verse one, after six days, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up and saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. What is going on in this passage? So Jesus takes a handful of his friends and they go up a mountain, which tradition holds is Mount Tabor not our Mount Tabor here in Portland, although I was walking there a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday evening, and it was just shortly after the heavy ice, and there were tons of, of branches that were broken and had fallen down, and ironically, somebody had um, had built three shelters on top of Mount Tabor with these branches and they'd kind of probably kids stack them up against the tree trunks to form these shelters. And I was like, wow, this is kind of odd. It's very much like what Peter wanted to do in the story, uh, which he ended up not doing. His, his suggestion was kind of very tactfully ignored by God and Jesus and Moses and, <laughs> and Elijah. Um, but he he wanted to build these shelters um, in it, in, in the book of Mark, it says, because he really just didn't know what else to say. <laughs> and so they're on Mount Tabor and Jesus is praying and he's transfigured in front of their eyes and he starts glowing and his, his garments turn to bright white and he's shining and then this cloud overwhelms them. Says they're covered by this cloud and a voice comes out of the cloud Speaking over Jesus, saying, "This is my son, in whom I'm with whom I'm well pleased," and and this voice says to to James, Peter, James, and John, "Listen to him." And so, what this is 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 really a retelling of the Exodus story of Moses going up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and there are many layers to the this, this story that we could unpack if we had the time, but essentially what Matthew is saying is Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the fulfillment of the promise that God is going to restore his people to himself, and that God is going to bring a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to come through this Jesus, who God has kind of endorsed and put his stamp of approval on in, in this moment. And it's a retelling of the story, but in the original story, Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments and and it's uh, ten commandments that show the people how to live, and it's kind of God's standard for, for how His people should live. Uh, but but when Jesus goes up, what God gives them is the understanding that Jesus is the embodiment of the new covenant. Jesus Himself. Um, as John says in his own gospel, John, one of the guys who was up there, um, says in his gospel, Moses came through. Moses came the law, but through Jesus came grace and truth. And so, the nature of this new covenant is grace and truth. And one of the things that the law does is is that it exposes to us just how far we fall short. And one of the, we when we when we try to live up to the law and we try to live up to the 10 commandments it becomes excruciatingly obvious to us just how how inadequate we really are but in jesus there's this deep sense that what we long for what we what we need and what we desire this brokenness that's part of us that we just we feel like is so woven into who we are, into our identity, and into the very, very fabric of our, our DNA, that Jesus can come, and in his glory, he can separate those things from us as far as the East is from the West. Jesus can come and cleanse us and bring us into a place where we can stand before God, naked and unashamed. We can stand before him with the disfigurement of our spiritual reality, and not be ashamed in any way, not be, uh, not be fearful to, to stand before him with the same sense of dignity and worth that Jesus himself has. Whatever shame, whatever humiliation you might be dealing with, whatever might have come to mind for you as I described shame, that very thing, whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is that you struggle with, Jesus had in, in this account a resolute determination, as resolute as God's determination in the promise that he made. Jesus was like, don't tell anyone until after the Son of, Son of Man has risen from the dead. And so he knew he's going to the cross for this very reason, to remove whatever it is, whatever it is that, that lurks beneath the surface for you, to bring that out into the light and for it to be destroyed in the light of his glory. How does he do that? The Greek word in this passage in Matthew 17, that's translated transfiguration, is the same Greek word that Paul uses in his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, 3 verse 18, when he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, or are being transfigured, into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's as though Jesus is offering us and, exchange. and theologians sometimes talk about this as the divine exchange. And Jesus is coming to say, your spiritual disfigurement, your, the disfigurement of your soul, I am coming to restore that. I'm gonna take that upon myself. I'm taking that to the grave. And in place of that, I'm bestowing on you a deep sense of dignity, of honor, of worth, and of glory. And Paul speaks of, of us sharing in, in this, this glorious liberty. Jesus is offering those things to anyone who would say, man, I, I want this. For, to anyone who submits their life to him and invites him into this process. And, and, and Jesus, he imparts his Holy Spirit into us. And the Spirit starts speaking new truths into our lives. The Holy Spirit speaks truth into the reality of who we are. When we think of this story of the transfiguration, the next thing in Scripture that comes anywhere close to kind of the level of this is the day of Pentecost. And the disciples, after Jesus has died and has has been resurrected, they're sitting in, in this upper room and they're waiting for they're, they're waiting for Jesus. He said to them, just wait, until the, and, and wait for the Holy Spirit. And they're sitting there, and a, a, something like a wind fills the air, tongues of fire descend upon them, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, Jesus gives birth to the church. And it's this moment of kind of corporate expression of the glory of God manifest in his body. And, and where, where God was manifest uh, on Mount Sinai uh, in this um, Shekinah cloud and then in the tabernacle and, and, and then on, on Mount Tabor um, and, and now he's manifest in his people. There's this glory of God manifest in the church. And this moment, this new manifestation of God's glory is also at the same time a renewal of God's mandate. In Matthew 28, Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all people. And it's, it's like a renewal of God's mandate, even to Adam and Eve to, to tend the garden and to, um, to co-rule with him in a way that brings dignity and honor to other people and to, to this earth. It's an incredibly compelling idea that God has established the church to do this and to bring his dignity and to bring his glory into a broken world. We don't always get it right. And the church is, through its, its history, it's often fallen short. Um, I've been reading essays by Steve Biko, who's a South African. Uh, who wasn't a South African anti-apartheid activist who died um, in his struggle for freedom. And Steve Biko, who was also uh, one of the founders of the black consciousness movement in South Africa, um, he speaks about and he laments um, the role of the church in the oppression of black people in South Africa. And this is something that for me as a white South African guy, I've had to really kind of process and deal with and had to, had to um, come to God uh, and bring my shame in that to God. Yet God continues to work despite the failure of the church and what we've seen in South Africa, is at the same time that there was a deep failure in the church, the the church was also one of the areas where where, where there was profound restoration. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, after he um, convened the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa at the fall of apartheid, He said this, he said, black consciousness sought to awaken in us the sense that our infinite value and worth in the sight of God, because we were all created in God's image so that our worth is intrinsic to who we are and not dependent on biological irrelevancies such as ethnicity, skin color, or race. Black consciousness aroused in us the knowledge of a share in what St. Paul called the glorious liberty of the children of God, urging us to enter into that splendid inheritance. And it seems counterintuitive that the way of Jesus is both humility and at the same time a deep sense of our share in his glorious liberty. A deep sense of our infinite worth in who we are in Him. And it's only in Jesus, it's only in Him, and through the presence of His Holy Spirit in our lives, that we can live into this reality and into this, this strange, um, in, this upside down reality that true freedom will, will come through humility. If we want to live effectively as the church in a city like Portland where so so much of the prevailing worldview uh, does not align with um, our beliefs and, and what God has called us to, we have to be able to straddle this reality of humility and a profound sense of our worth in a city that's struggling with, ma- with a massive homeless population, with people who are houseless and have discarded their sense of dignity and worth, many of whom have discarded their sense of dignity, not all. Many of those people have, have just walked away from any sense of self-worth or self-dignity. We as the church, rather than being ashamed of our inability to, to solve this problem can, can walk into small steps of, of glory and bring dignity into the, into the smallest of interactions with those people. One of our house gatherings um, assembles care kits and distributes it to ha- houseless people in their neighborhood. Once a month, a team from Mosaic serves at Port and Rescue mission and helps to, helps to serve a meal and it 's a simple act of kindness in serving a meal and helping to facilitate something that uh, a, a Christian organization is trying to do to improve th- that situation for people and bring god 's love and dignity into the, into that. I would argue that we as followers of jesus who 've been redeemed by him who 've been uh, bestowed honor and dignity and glory through His glory, need, we need to walk in a kind of glory consciousness. And the more aware we are of the glory of God, and the more aware we are of the glory of God manifest in the church and in others, the more secure we'll be, the more um, safe we'll, we'll walk together with Him. We'll be taking communion shortly in our virtual house gatherings, and this is a sacrament that was instituted by Jesus to, um, to remind us of His glory, to evoke within us a consciousness of His glory. But well, I want to close with a quote by C.S. Lewis, and he says this, and he says, "...next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses." If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, vera the latitat, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. And so Christ is manifest within us, within our midst, and within each other. And I want to close with this prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've manifest your glory in us. Thank you that you've given yourself to us and that you remove shame, that you remove, remove guilt and you remove condemnation. And Lord, I pray that we would be profoundly aware of, you, of our share in your glorious freedom and that as we extend that same grace and generosity and kindness to those around us, that it would become a force for healing, for forgiveness, and a force for restoration in a broken world. Amen.